I'm Dave Rubin and joining me today is the twice and future Prime Minister of the State of Israel and author of the new book, Bibi, My Story, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, welcome to the Rubin Report. Good to be with you, please. You know, I have to say, I've, I've watched you obviously on television, a million interviews over the years, speaking at the UN, all kinds of things. And one of the things that I always think when you're speaking or any advocate for Israel is why don't they show more maps? Just show a map of the Middle East and the size of Israel versus you know, the entire region and everything else. And then I get a copy of your book and we're gonna show you the full thing on screen, but I'm gonna hold it up for just a moment. That's exactly how the book begins, right? With the opening flap right there, just to give a little context to the size. And I thought that would be an interesting way to uh, well, start the conversation. Minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you have to do something. Open that book. Yes. Put your thumb, put your finger on Israel so they get a, a feeling for the Arab world. This is Israel, right? Yes, exactly. And, and don't even begin to encompass the Arab world or Iran uh, in this, in these two flaps. So that's, uh, that's my two cents worth of uh, proportion. Yeah, well, I thought it was a nice way to start because basically when people look at most maps of the world, you, you can't even fit one letter of the word Israel on Israel itself. And I feel like if people understood that a little bit more, maybe they'd be perhaps a little bit kinder. Is that just naivete as someone that's been defending Israel? for, you know, 60 plus years? Well, it's, uh, it's wishful thinking, but yeah, I, I guess when people are exposed to the facts, which many are not, uh, yeah, they see it differently and they, they realize that Israel is a tiny country, but it's a gigantic country because even though we constitute uh, less than one-tenth, one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, we have been consistently ranked in the decade uh, that I led the country between 2010 and 2020, uh, as the eighth most powerful uh, uh, country in the world, which is uh, is kind of unbelievable. I mean, when you think of it, uh, and that that is, I suppose, not only you can explain that rationally, but I think it's a miracle of, of faith and resolution. Israel, because of the resolution, the resolve of its uh, citizens, the genius uh, of its people, uh, has become the juggernaut. Um, innovation nation in the world and we have uh we've just crossed in gdp we've crossed japan france britain um and germany in gdp per capita and remember when i i described this in my book when we began the economic revolution uh towards free markets away from socialism we were basically the last place in western europe and now we're pretty much in first place and we're we're going to catch up with the united states that's uh, a personal quest. I'm not saying that we'll be in the United States, but we'll catch up with the United States. So as I described in the opening, you are the twice and future prime minister of Israel. As, as we speak right now, you're in the midst of, of forming this coalition. You have the mandate to do it. You've done this a couple times before, but Israel seems to have elections every, what, six months or so. Uh, are you confident that you're gonna pull this thing together? I mean, this one looks a little more solid, I guess, than the last few, right? Yeah, well, we had, uh, first of all, this is the sixth time I'm forming a government. And uh, I've been Israel's longest serving prime minister, and I described my travails and triumphs in the, in the course of that very long career. Within a, a year, I'll be the longest serving elected leader of a democracy 
in uh, over half a century of any place in the world. But somebody uh, put me a note the other day, gave me a note, and he said, well, you should know that there are leaders who've come back from political death. Uh, Churchill, one example. It's Rabin in Israel. But this fellow told me, I've checked, when was the last time somebody came back from political death twice? And he said that happened three quarters of a century ago. So I don't, uh, I don't belittle the task before me. But I think after a succession of uh, un, uh, indecisive elections uh, and the formation of a peculiar government that was brought down after a year, we now have a solid majority, a coherent majority, to form uh, a center-right and right government, coherent in policy, that will, I think, take Israel and the Middle East to fantastic places, contrary to the uh, left-leaning press, will get more peace treaties, perhaps uh, end the Arab-Israeli conflict altogether. Not the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the conflict with the Arab world, which is uh, 99 times the size of the Palestinian, uh, and uh, block Iran, and develop technologies that will stupefy the world and service all of uh, uh, all of humanity. Uh, these are some of the goals that I have, and I think they're within reach. Yes, I think it'll be more stable, and I think it'll be successful. You mentioned a center-right or right coalition. Can you sort of compare how that's different than, say, an American right? I know you're a student of American politics as well, but for you guys, the right, is it's a little bit different just by the nature of the, the demographics and everything else. Well, I, I think, the uh, first of all, it's a parliamentary system, so you have to cobble together a coalition. It's not as if the prime minister is elected by popular vote like the president. Mm -hmm. He can choose his cabinet uh, and so on. This is not. Do, do you way. get jealous of our two-party system when you're in the midst of trying to cobble this thing together? Wildly so, <laughs> envious to the roots of my being. Uh, but <laughs> because cobbling together a coalition is like, uh, you know, you're, you're familiar with the Rubik's cube, you know? Yeah, of course. Turn one, and then it, uh, you have to turn the other one, and it matches, and you turn it, and you think you got it, and then the last piece doesn't match. You have to start all over again. That's more or less what I've been doing over the last uh, few weeks. But I think. I think I'm getting there. Um, uh, this is not Rubin's Cube. This is Rubik's Cube. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Rubik. Uh, so at the end, I have to be Rubik or there's no government. Uh, there will be a government. Uh, so uh, the first thing is you have to cobble together a coalition. Uh, that is a, a majority in the, the members of the parliament, our Congress, if you will. And they choose the prime minister. And obviously, if we put it together, they'll, they'll choose me. That's the first uh, change. The second change is because you have a multi multiplicity of parties. You don't have two parties. You have, I don't know, 12 parties in the Knesset, something like that. Uh, and uh, the third thing is that um, the right in Israel is, first of all, premised, the differences between left and right are premised, first of all, on the intensity that you put on the question of security. Security is the number one issue in Israeli elections. The economy is a second uh sometimes a distant second, uh, and the, uh, I would say, the uh, intensity of identification with the Jewish state um, uh, and how you protect it is really what guides uh, guides Israeli elections. And that's what brought me to office here, because the outgoing government, to cobble together their coalition, uh, basically made a pact with uh, a party, an Arab party, that uh, identifies with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood 
want to recognize a Jewish state, it wants to dissolve a Jewish state. Now, obviously, the outgoing coalition didn't want to dissolve the Jewish state, but they made themselves hostage to uh, a party that does in order to stay in power. Well, that didn't last long, and it was brought down, and now uh, I assure you that's not going to be repeated. By the way, many Arabs support me. Many Arabs vote for the Likud. Uh, Arabs of Serb in the Likud and can serve in any government uh, in the future. Uh, but the, the issue is not uh, the ethnicity of the uh, the voters or the ministers or the Knesset members. It's their ideology. And once the ideology, to which, unfortunately, some Jews subscribe to, Jewish Knesset members, that Israel should be dissolved, destroyed, eliminated, uh, obviously, that didn't do well with the voters. So here we are. We have uh, We have a way to correct this. How do you balance some of the, the tensions between the, the secular people and the more religious people as someone that's gonna be prime minister for everybody? You, you've obviously done this a couple of times before, uh, obviously very successfully, but that that's one of the, the sort of uh, fissures in Israeli society. Uh, what you do in any uh, democracy is you compromise, you make compromises. There are things you don't compromise about. On Israel's existence, on security, I don't compromise. And if I have to stand up and, and go to a joint session of Congress uh, to challenge um, uh, a person I respected but disagreed with, uh, President Obama, uh, he wanted to pass this, uh, and did actually, this uh, uh, dangerous Iran nuclear deal, which would pave Iran's path with gold to a nuclear arsenal. Well, I thought I had no choice. I have to go and take a stand and give a speech there, which I describe in detail. Uh, so there are things you don't compromise about, but in the life, in political life and democracies, that's what you constantly do. You either come to an agreement with uh, opposing views, and if you don't come to an agreement, you bring it to uh, to a vote. Uh, and often you um, you come to an agreement by arriving at some kind of balance between opposing views, and that's being done every day. You do it in the American Congress. You do it in the Israeli Knesset. So as someone that's, uh, you're, you're basically the same age as the country within, within a couple of years, uh, and you, you were born in a time when, you know, the country was trying to come together, was obviously not powerful, a couple, couple miracles, basically to even come into existence as a nation, versus now where there's a military might and an economic power that you're talking about. How, how different is that for the Israeli psyche? Or even just, even just for you as the leader of the country, knowing what the country was 50 years ago, compared to where it's at in 2022? Well, you know, I described the roots of my views and it's very much influenced by my father who was a great historian of the Jewish people. But what he taught me was that there is no finality in the life of nations. Nations have come and nations have gone and the Jewish people are perhaps unique in the fact that having lost our country, having lost our state, having been dispersed to the far corners of the earth, we actually came back and reconstituted our national life uh, in, in our homeland, our tiny homeland, but our homeland. Uh, and the fact that we did, that was, I would say, the, uh, the mission of restoring Jewish nationhood and Jewish independence uh, in the land of Israel was the task that informed my grandfather uh, and my father uh, in founding and helping found the state. The task that, uh, that I inherited was to um, secure the future, the, the the prosperity, and especially the security and permanence of this state, uh, because it's not guaranteed. 
Well, uh, what guarantees what guarantees um, the life of states in a turbulent world, uh, which is often cruel? Well, you know, for some people uh, on the left, they think that if you're moral and if you uh, put up a, a nice facade to the world, a compliant facade, then history will protect you. Um, in fact, uh, they often quote Martin Luther King, who said that uh, the arc of history bends towards justice. Maybe so, but it is a very brittle arc, and uh, it could break under the pounding of the darkest forces, the totalitarian and dictatorial and, uh, and ideological forces that are opposed to the very idea of freedom and justice. So, and history doesn't favor morality. It favors strength. That's what it does. That's why Genghis Khan could conquer, conquer the world and hold his, uh, you know, and hold down the, that empire, could hold on for a century. Could, an enormous subjugation. The Romans, whatever you think of them, held it for many, many more centuries through just sheer power, sheer coercion and power. And does it guarantee that our free civilization, does history guarantee that our free civilization would triumph over totalitarian forces? And the answer is categorically not. If they can amass greater economic, military, and political power, especially economic and military power, then they'll overcome you if you don't have enough countervailing force. Israel, being a tiny country, had to be enormously more powerful, given that it was surrounded at first by hundreds of millions of Arabs who wanted to destroy it, uh, and lately by about 100 million Iranians who don't want to destroy it, but are governed by these theological thugs who do, and openly declare death to Israel, and by the way, death to America too, but they're building atomic bombs, or that's what they seek to do, to destroy Israel. So you need to be very, very strong. I devoted my life, as I describe in my book, to uh, empower Israel, not to uh, not to subjugate others, but to defend itself from others and to make sure that nobody could uh, destroy the one and only Jewish state once it was reconstituted after thousands of years. The one thing that, and all Israelis understood that, they understood that we have to have a strong army. The first prime minister, uh, David Ben-Gurion, uh, invested an enormous effort to build such an army. But I came to the conclusion that it couldn't be sustained. It couldn't be sustained because F-35 fighter aircraft, submarines, drones, cyber, intelligence, and so on, they have one common quality. They cost money, a lot of money. And if you have a socialist economy, you're not going to be able to pay for defense. Typically, the way Israelis thought about it, well, the government will produce the money. How will they produce the money? They'll tax the rich. Tax the rich? Well, they're not. first of all, they're not enough rich people in a socialist economy. And secondly, those who are will move to other places when you overtax them. Uh, I came with a radical idea, which I described in my book, that uh, there's a thing called free markets, capitalism. And that's the way we generate both a better life for our people, a higher income, a higher distribution of income compared to the, uh, the what the socialist-leaning uh, people were thinking. But also, it gives us the wherewithal to fund our military. And therefore, I initiated uh, a free market revolution in Israel that made Israel into this juggernaut, this uh, free market juggernaut of the innovation nation uh, that can compete with any country in the world, and in fact does.
Uh, and that changed Israel. It gave it the economic power to have pol- to have military power, and the combination of the two gave us diplomatic power. And that is what can guarantee our future. Not forever. I don't know of anything that protects you forever, but for the coming decades. And that's what I intend to to nurture further in uh, in the coming years and my next tenure as prime minister. So I want to get back to the economic stuff because I think it's super interesting that you guys went in essence from a socialist nation to a capitalist nation and then an economic powerhouse. Where in the United States, we seem to be doing some version of the reverse of that, at least at, least at the moment, hopefully not for too long. But on some of the security stuff you just mentioned, you were sort of way ahead when it came to like the Gaza withdrawal of 20 some odd years ago. You were not for it when, when Sharon did it and you said it would not bring peace. Clearly that was proven correct. When you talk to your lefty counterparts or if, they, if they're willing to talk to you, do they still believe that, oh, if we just give away enough land that actually that would provide peace? I mean, are, are there really thought leaders on the left that believe those things at this point? Or, or well, is it just posturing? Well, no, I, I think some of them believe it, but they also avoid talking about it because, because the, most of the public doesn't accept it. Why? Because we tried it. So we left, we vacated Lebanon. The, the, the argument was you give territory, you get peace, territory for peace. Okay. We left Lebanon and that territory was taken over by proxies of uh, Iran, Hezbollah, who fired 10,000 rockets uh, since then into Israel. We left Gaza. Uh, again, with the hope that this would create peace. And it, this was taken over by another proxy of Iran or a close uh, uh, close uh, ally of Iran, Hamas. And they fired 10,000 rockets into Israel. And if you say, all right, so let's leave Judea, Samaria, which is uh, the heartland, the, the, the biblical heartland of uh, Israel, and what and, and envelops uh, Jerusalem and, and is within spitting distance of Tel Aviv, uh, just leave. And Israel, by the way, would become 10 miles wide with its back. Uh, and just shut your eyes, hope for the best, and hope that what happened in Lebanon with Hezbollah, what happened in uh, in Gaza with Hamas, doesn't recur uh, in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank. Okay? Uh, people can't buy that now because we've tried it. You know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, you know that. Uh, and that's, people are not going to do that. So you ask, do they believe it? They probably cling to it as a religious, uh, you know, sort of a, a religious, uh, quasi-religious belief that they don't abandon right away. But politically, this simply didn't come up in the previous elections. It just wasn't an issue, not at all. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the issue was me. I was the issue. They basically said, you know, the, the issue wasn't uh, Israel's uh, uh, security, not the idea of creating a a Palestinian state, which would be an armed Palestinian state uh, committed to our destruction. People didn't buy that. Right. Uh, it, it would also be two states, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't in essence, there would be two, I mean, it, were to, it would really be a three-state solution, not a two-state solution, because Gaza and the West Bank obviously are not connected. People don't well, seem to really understand been, that. Gaza's already been shorn away, and is a, it's effectively an independent state. It's surrounded by Israel and, and Egypt, but it's an independent state. Well, what do they do with it? You know, they build tunnels in order to terror tunnels, in order to penetrate us or build rockets. They didn't do a damn thing for their people, the Hamas. You know, they execute. That's what they do. They shoot them in the back of the neck. If they dare uh, utter dissent, they, uh, uh, you know, they they abuse uh, their women. They uh, abuse gays and so on. But that doesn't prevent the international left 
from talking about <laughs> human rights, talking about Israel and human rights, and not about these these thugs who do these horrible things to their own people, just as until recently they didn't talk about Iran, until those brave and extraordinarily brave women went out in the street, and this created a, a, a united front of left and right that finally sees the true nature of this horrible regime in, in Tehran. That hasn't yet happened to the Palestinians, but, the, but you can look. Uh, what do you think is the difference between the Iranian regime and the uh, the Palestinian regime in Gaza? The answer is nothing. It's only smaller uh, and less well armed. That's the only difference. But in terms of in terms of uh, violating the rights of Palestinians and you know, men and women and and everybody else, they're horrible, horrible people. So you can't get peace if you talk about peace. The reason we haven't had peace with the Palestinians uh, is because the Palestinians don't want peace. I mean, they've been led by leaders who are committed to Israel's destruction for now for a century, before the existence of Israel and since the existence of Israel. And they say they want peace, but without Israel. They say they want a state, but it's not a state next to Israel. It's a state instead of Israel. So one of the things that happened as a result of what I just described is that people said, you have to have first have peace with the Palestinians before you can have peace with the broader Arab world. Remember, the Palestinians are 1% to 2% of the Arab world, both in landmass and in population. Uh, but uh, the regnant thinking, the prevailing thinking in the, you know, in the foreign policy elites and the, in the foreign ministry chancelleries of the world, you have to have peace with the Palestinians or you won't have peace between Israel and the rest of the Arab world. And I and thought, you did well, it the other way. Not only did I do it the other way, we waited for 25 years, a quarter of a century, that way, we didn't get anywhere. We couldn't, and we'd wait another half century, maybe another century. I said, "No, we're going around. We're going to around that, and we'll go directly to the Arab world." And as a result of the rise of Israeli power, because of our the the revolution that uh, that we led, I led to make Israel uh, a free market economy, which bolstered our military and intel and cyber capabilities. We became very valuable to other countries, valuable in civilian technology, which could better the lives of their citizens, and valuable in terms of uh, offering security help, of fending off a common threat like Iran. So what happened was, and I could see this happening, uh, and I nurtured it uh, to happen, is that Arab states began to look at us not as an enemy, but as their indispensable ally in Fending off Iranian aggression, which would subjugate them to, and bringing a better life for their citizens. And that view was, um, I would say, was dramatized, brought to a head in that speech that I made in Congress challenging President Obama's uh, deal with Iran. While I was giving that speech, in real time, we got phone calls from Gulf states uh, in which the representatives of these governments were saying, we can't believe what your prime minister is doing. We can't believe he's standing up the way he is because he's really standing up for us. We don't have, you know, the gumption to, to do that. But that led to clandestine meetings. I'm talking about 2015. 2015. Uh, that led to secret meetings uh, uh, with the Gulf leaders. And that laid the foundation for the Abraham Accords that turned things upside down. If the idea was that you make peace inside out from the Palestinians to the broader Arab world, I said, well, 
Maybe so if the Palestinians want to come, but we're not going to wait for them. And I said, we're going to make an inside, outside in. We'll go to the Arab states. Uh, and finally, we'll, you know, we'll double back to the Palestinians. But that is, uh, that produced four historic peace accords with the help of President Trump and his team. The Abraham Accords, peace with the United Arab Emirates, peace with uh, Bahrain, peace with uh, Morocco, and peace with Sudan. And I've actually come to this podcast, to this uh, uh, discussion of ours, uh, right from the celebrating the Independence Day of the Emirates uh, here in Tel Aviv. If you'd said two years ago, yeah, you know, if you said two years ago this would happen, people would think you're crazy. I didn't think it was crazy. I knew it would happen. If you told me that hundreds of thousands of Israelis would be flying over the skies of Saudi Arabia uh, and and dancing in the streets with the Emiratis uh, in Abu Dhabi and in uh, Dubai, you'd say this is crazy. But it's not crazy. It's happening. And this is the path to peace that I intend to pursue uh, with much greater, even greater fervor, not much greater fervor, but greater fervor uh, and great opportunity uh, in the coming years. How much of the, uh, the mishigas, there's a word for you, of uh, the Middle East is just uh, people not really understanding the history? I've heard you talk about the history of Israel many, many times, uh, but people not understanding that when you talk about Judea and Samaria, which we now know as the West Bank, Judea, Jews used to live there, Bethlehem, that's where Jesus lived, that this is not a place that Jews are foreign from, that people simply don't understand the basic history of the land. Well, you know, in the mo- in the modern world, uh, if you have, you're lucky if uh, uh, your historical memory goes back to breakfast. Uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. But in our case, I mean, people, you're right, they don't know the facts. They think we're the uh, Belgians in the Congo or the Dutch in Indonesia or some British colonials, I don't know, in some other part of uh, Africa and so on. And of course, this is not the case. Uh, as you say, Jews came from Judea. Uh, King David, uh, it's been our homeland for 3,500 years. 3,000 years ago, King David proclaimed Jerusalem as our capital. The events described in the Bible uh, occurred for a period of about 2,000 years, uh, actually less, but about 1,500 years. Uh, until the birth of, uh, just before the birth of Christianity. Now, where did that happen? Where did Jesus turn uh, over the uh, the uh, tables of the money changers? It wasn't in a temple in uh, Tibet. You know? <laughs> it didn't happen right. in, next to Joburg in South Africa. It happened right there in Jerusalem. Uh, and what did what language did Jesus, uh, Jesus speak? He spoke Hebrew. And he spoke Aramaic. He probably wrote in Hebrew and so on. His name is a Hebrew name. He was a Jewish rabbi from the Galilee. So there's a, an attempt to erase the first uh, roughly 2,000 years of Jewish history. Uh, it didn't exist. The Jews were not there. Well, we are the original uh, natives of the land. And actually, we were dispossessed. You know, all these conquerors, people who conquered us, the Romans and before them, the Greeks and after them, the Byzantines and so on. None of them displaced us. Actually, the displacement of the Jews from their homeland took place Uh, in greater numbers and in significant numbers after the Arabs conquered the land in the 7th century. Okay, so it's not, the Arabs were the ones who who expropriated the land from the Jews and the Jews didn't expropriate it from the Arabs. Well, that happens. So, what, you're going to go back uh, now 1,300 years to the 7th century? The Arabs came in, they lived there, it's their land. No, that's not what happened. 
the Arab uh, conquerors didn't populate the land. They didn't build new cities except one, uh, communities, one, one, called Ramah. Everything else was left barren. And they too were displaced by other conquerors, other the Mamluks, the Ottomans, the British, and the, and I, don't, I won't get into that. But a succession of empires governed this land. And it was nothing. It wasn't the homeland of anyone except the Jews who never gave up the dream of coming back to there. And over the centuries, Jews would pray next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And it was only in the 19th century when a modern Moses emerged from, uh, for, for our people. His name was Theodore Herzl. He was 36 years old and he worked for only for eight years. That's it. For eight years. Uh, a giant of history. Uh, because he died young at 44. And he said, the only way to have national salvation uh, and to avoid what he foresaw would be the Holocaust in Europe would be for the Jewish people to come back to their ancestral homeland. That return that began in the latter part of the 19th century uh, brought the land back to life. And as we were bringing it back to life, there were uh, people living there, but very few. Uh, but the, there was a great influx that came in as a result of the Jewish return, influx of Arabs who came in for better wages, for the factories, for the uh, uh, hospitals, uh, for the uh, uh, farms that the, the Jews built. That attracted many Arabs. They now call themselves Palestinians. They say, we've been here for thousands of years, you know, from the time of Jesus. No, they weren't. We had a, a verdant homeland uh, when the Jews came here in the 19th century. No, you didn't. Mark Twain will attest to that and hundreds of others. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. You had nothing there. We came back to our ancestral homeland, rebuilt it, accepted uh, uh, our Arab neighbors, but they refused to have ours, and they still refuse. So if you want to understand the justice of the Jewish case, is we never gave up our claim to our homeland. We are the native uh, uh, owners of the land. We are the ones who have every right to live there, uh, having been dispossessed from it, first of all by Arabs, but we don't want to dispossess the Arabs themselves. They're the ones who refuse to do it. And if you ask me, what is the persistent obstacle to having an Israeli-Palestinian peace as opposed to an Israeli-Arab peace, which we're achieving, it's the persistent Palestinian refusal to recognize a Jewish state in any boundary. That's the problem. And because that's not going to be resolved right away, I say, go to the Arab world, get these extraordinary agreements with the Arab countries, and the greatest prize would be, without a doubt, Saudi Arabia, which would effectively, peace with Saudi Arabia would effectively end the Arab-Israeli conflict. And then do your damnedest to get the, the rejectionist leadership uh, in the Palestinian world, uh, Palestinian society, to accept the right of the Jewish people to have a state of their own. And then I think we can have a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Uh, but I, I think it's. I think that's going to be the order. I had to change um, a perception that had been ingrained in, in the minds of the experts and the foreign mm -hmm. mavens, and you name them, you know, for for close to half a century. I, I simply challenged it. And the, I was the think tank people in D.C. probably were not that thrilled with you. The think tank people in Tel Aviv weren't thrilled were with me. <laughs> and basically, you know, I have a, an idea that all think tanks and many diplomats are all produced in a secret plant 30 kilometers west of Luxembourg. And then they're sort of sent, dispatched to all the uh, <laughs> the bureaucracies, the foreign policy bureaucracy of the world. And they just chant this thing. 
the Palestinian uh, conflict is the center of the, is the core of the conflict always in the singular in the Middle East? No, it's not. Uh, the only way that you can solve it is for Israel to become so weak that it couldn't defend itself? No, it's not. There's not going to be peace with the rest of the Arab world if you don't solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? No, it's not. But, you know, if you vest yourself in this nonsense for decades, it's very hard to uh, very hard to uh, uh, um, detach yourself from it. And so if, I, I always go, find it. I always find it interesting how how it sort of mainstreams itself in a bizarre sense. So, for example, you know, Rashida Tlaib, our congresswoman in Michigan, who I have no doubt you're not a big fan of. I think maybe she was even banned from Israel at one point. You know, she'll every uh, December she wishes Jews a happy Hanukkah. But at the same time, she doesn't want Jews living in the place that is the story of Hanukkah. Does she know about the hills? Uh, Probably about two miles from you right now. Happy Hanukkah. You know, Hanukkah was celebrated the victory of the brave Maccabees against one of the conquerors of our land uh, actually 2,200 years ago, roughly 2,200 years ago, 2,200 years ago. Jews were fighting for their freedom against the uh, basically the... Uh, uh, the Seleucid uh, Empire, which was based in Syria, one of the, uh, uh, it's named after one of the generals of Alexander the Great, uh, who uh, actually had a, a positive uh, uh, attitude towards Jews, but his uh, inheritors didn't. Uh, and uh, one of them wanted to wipe out uh, the Jewish religion, and Jews rebelled. And this rebellion, uh, led by uh, five brothers, each died. They all died in this battle. Uh, finally achieved the liberation of the land uh, and, uh, and the liberation of Jerusalem. That's what we celebrate. The uh, Hanukkah is the uh, liberation of Jerusalem, specifically the uh, cleansing of the uh, the Jewish temple. Uh, so uh, you tell that to Rashid Talib. I want to hear a response. I mean. So were the Jews there or not? Were the Palestinians <laughs> there in Hanukkah or the Jews were there in Hanukkah? You know, and, and this exemplifies the, the tremendous ignorance that you, you discuss. They just don't know. The Jews, the Jewish people, are probably one of the oldest civilizations, are not probably, are one of the two or three oldest civilizations in history. Our attachment to our uh, ancestral homeland is unmatched. Uh, a lot of people are attached to their ancestral homeland, but they're not as old as us. And a lot of them lost their ancestral homeland and disappeared. We're the only ones who were kicked out of it. Uh, expelled from it and said, we're going to come back. And we came back, defying the odds of history, achieved this miracle, built this extraordinarily uh, modern, uh, successful state. We respect our roots, we respect our neighbors, uh, and we're bringing a light onto the nations, principally by incredible technology. And yet they say, you have no right to live there. You know, We kicked you out once, we'll kick you out again. No, you won't. It won't happen. Whether you're a Hamas, or Hezbollah or Iran. It's not gonna happen. We're not gonna let it happen. Well, it certainly ain't gonna happen under your watch. I, I do wanna be respectful of your time because it's late night in Israel right now and you are in the midst of this coalition build and I'm sure you have some things to do. I wanna ask you just one thing personally and, and I'll post the link to the book and people can read all about your history and, and your brother and there's really some remarkable stuff in there, but just on, on a personal note to end, uh, you know, you've had to go into the fire a million times, not only in the military, but domestic, uh, in terms of going to the UN, giving these speeches, the hostility towards Israel, standing up for your country and your, your uh, beliefs and your religion, all of those things, it can't be easy. It can't be that fun. I mean, the amount of hate and protests and all, all of the stuff. 
And I wonder at, uh, you know, at your age, coming back, doing this again, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but you're doing it again and you seem as energized as ever. And I, I, where, where does that come from within you? And did you think about not doing it? I mean, when, you, when the last election didn't go your way, did you think, okay, let me just step away? Or you were basically fighting in the opposition immediately? Well, there was a, one incident that I described in one of my defeats, uh, because I've had a few defeats. I've had a succession of victories, but I also had defeats. And, you know, that question arose. Uh, I had one, uh, uh, one uh, elections where my party contracted to 12 seats. That's 10% of the Knesset. Mm -hmm. So for comparison, we now have 32 seats in a coalition of uh, 64 out of 120. Uh, 32 led by my party, which is by far the, the largest party in the Knesset. Um, a quarter of the seats, uh, more than a quarter. Um, and a coalition that is solid. But here you get, we, this happened where I contracted to... 12 seats, and I went, you know, I came back from, uh, you know, meeting the the party faithful. There weren't too many in that evening of uh, of defeat. And I said to my wife, Sarah, I said, uh, look, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is the end. You know, we've, uh, you know, they eulogized me all the time. Maybe this, this time, <laughs> you're right. And, uh, uh, you know, why don't we just, uh, you know, uh, get on with our family, with our two young boys, and with our life, and get on with our life. And she said to me, Bibi, this is your life. Don't leave it. This is your purpose. And if you ask what has guided me, what allows me to do this, it's this sense of purpose. It's the fact that uh, I'm pursuing a mission, and the mission which I inherited from my, uh, from my grandfather and my father and my fallen brother is to uh, assure the uh, the security and permanence of the state of Israel only by by making it strong and uh, and powerful. Uh, but I, I think it's not only uh, my family and my wife and kids who two boys who support me and who share this mission. Otherwise, it would be impossible to to continue. But it's also millions and millions of people, not only millions of uh, of uh, people in Israel, millions of Jews throughout the world, but million of non, millions of non-Jews who see in the story of Israel uh, a parable for humanity. Because if the Jewish people can overcome the most dreadful odds in history, can come back from the dead, can ford uh, this river between annihilation and salvation, uh, and build this remarkable state, then there's hope for all of humanity. And uh, alongside the deformation of Israel, the slander, uh, the vilification, I have to say there's enormous, enormous respect and admiration and sometimes adoration uh, in many, many lands. And as Israel uh, emerges as one of these uh, rising powers in the world, uh, able to send aid missions, emergency missions, to dozens and dozens of countries, some of them hostile countries, to help people out of earthquakes or hurricanes or floods, you know, and people see the the true nature of the state. And when they uh, they pick up their cell phone and they understand that a good part of that technology and that cell phone that makes their life different completely comes from Israel. Or when you navigate in your car with Waze 
another Israeli product, and it's endless. It goes on and on. The medicine, the technology, the the health, the, the water desalinization, all these things that are not pie in the sky. They're not, this is real. It's changing the life, not only of Israelis, but of, of the world. Then there's also a different admiration for Israel. So the, the life of purpose that I'm talking about uh, says that the Jewish people have come back from the dead and we are here and we, uh, we will continue to hold the high ground, literally and figuratively. We are here and we're here to stay. That's my purpose. And I would say to those people who want to read my book, my story, it's not really my story alone. It, it is. My years in a, uh, uh, in a combat unit, I nearly died several times in firefights. I describe uh, most of it uh, within the limits of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, military propriety. Uh, and I nearly died twice politically. But it's not merely my life. It's interwoven with the life of uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish state. Uh, but I think that there is a larger issue here. I live, and I can say this categorically, a life of purpose. Um, and I think it's the, if you have a purpose in your life, uh, and preferably if it goes beyond yourself, it will enrich your life and make it meaningful. It's the only life worth living. And if you want to glean some insights uh, about that, then unabashedly, I'm, I tell you, I'm plugging my book. Read my book. I think you'll benefit from it. <laughs> well, we will link down to your book below, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. It's uh, cards on the table. It's, it's fairly obvious to me why the Israeli people are giving you another crack at this, and I suspect some other peace deals and other good things are going to come. And I have to say that I will be in Israel in May doing a few events and you did break bread with my good friends, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, not too long ago. So maybe I can take you out for hummus, something like that. Got it. <laughs> Let's do it. Maybe I can take you out. The Israeli economy is doing well. <laughs> it, it would be an honor, sir. Uh, the book is BB My Story. The link is right down below. And I appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. Now go, now go do your coalition thing. I'm, I'm doing exactly that. You think I'm joking, but that's exactly what I'm doing in the other week. <laughs> Thank you so much, really, truly an honor, sir. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.